Thank you very much for having me. My parents are both refugees. They both fled in their teens with their families from Nazi Germany. And my mother, who was born in 1923, described looking out of the window at a, at a march past of the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler Youth. And she said, you know, had I not been Jewish, it was so seductive that I would have wanted to join them. And one must not underestimate the, the power of such, of such movements. And actually, that's where I want to begin with the book that's had a lot of influence on me, Yasha Munk's book, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And he writes, history is full of people who couldn't imagine that the peace and stability to which they had grown accustomed over the course of their brief lives might somehow end. It's full of pagan priests and French aristocrats, Russian peasants and German Jews. If we don't want to end like them, we need to be more vigilant and start to fight for our most fervently held values. And I've heard many people say, I don't think I can take for granted anymore the things that I thought I could take for granted. And that's what this day is really about. And what I want to do is to, to portray some of what I, what I think, I imagine it's consensual, but I may be wrong, are some of the background issues, some of the ways they influence democracy, and then suggest ways in which we should try to perhaps conduct ourselves. Um, and I want to begin with three background areas, and one of them is concerned with truth. We are all too familiar now with the phrases like fake news and alternative facts. And I think they belong to a deeper trend than the Trump-Putin age. Because one of the things I've wondered is whether we're seeing a revision of the values of empiricism and the Enlightenment, a kind of decline of the age of truth. And that one of the instruments in that decline has been probably a misunderstanding and misuse of postmodernism, which has suggested that I, you know, I don't need to be bound to empirical reality because my version of truth is my version of truth, and there is no objective truth. And one can see a kind of slide from that into, well, the narrative I tell you is what matters, and whether it's actually accurate or not is quite secondary. And I'm rather frightened of re-entering an age of myth in which the most compelling and powerful myth will triumph whatever the damage it does to others. And we've all been familiar, I think, with Ed Gore's excellent book, Echo, Inconvenient Truth. It struck me now we're living in an age of convenient untruth. Convenient untruth to help us deal with inconvenient truths. And this is exacerbated, as we know, by the role of social media with the kind of the soundbite that one person after another says, well, this doesn't allow for nuance, it doesn't allow for subtlety, and that one of the greatest, world, you know, most powerful world leaders should choose Twitter as a mode of public expression is very disturbing. So, and after Brexit, 
after the vote, and I have to say my own position will become fairly clear on this, and I think my community was probably 90% in favour of Remain, we had an open forum in which people did not sort of, it wasn't a party forum, it wasn't a few forums, it was just people said we can't talk to each other in our families. And one of the people there had been a BBC fact checker, and he said, you know, in the past people have been called out for telling half-truths or falsehoods they believed. In the fact-checking for the BBC, we told somebody, some of the leaders, these things weren't true, and they just said them again. And I haven't experienced that before. In the wake of Trump's election, Timothy Snyder, um, scholar of the Holocaust and the 20th century, 20th century history, uh, wrote his short book, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, in which he focuses on the importance of truth. And there he writes, to abandon facts is to abandon freedom. If nothing is true, then no one can criticize power because there's no basis upon which to do so. If nothing is true, all is spectacle. And one of the things we need to do is to protect the freedom of speech. I felt dismayed, maybe wrongly, at what came across as a somewhat weak response to the, in some places, to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in the Iranian embassy in Turkey. And uh, the Guardian published from the statistics of the Committee to Protect Journalists that in the past 10 years, 370 journalists have been killed. 90% of those murders are, 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 are unsolved. And that the freedom of the word and to pursue truth is really the backbone of our civilization. Fact-checking isn't going to be enough to serve us well. I think telling somebody in this age that facts are wrong can be a bit like King Canute trying to beat back the waves. It doesn't hold power. And in another of his recent books, Timothy Snyder looked at the, the, the declarations of Putin and said that here is a culture which perpetrates lies which everybody knows are not true. For instance, about who, 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 who began the war in the, in, in, in the Ukraine or the shooting down of that aircraft. And it doesn't matter that they're not true. What matters is that they're narratives that people believe. And we need to find, create, and speak about compelling narratives of human experience with honesty, but also with conviction. Um, one of those moments is a terrible moment, but it did capture the conscience of the world was the drowning of Alan Kurdi and the pictures by that seashore. That, it's a terrible example, but it did actually present a, a very powerful narrative which galvanized us for all too short a time. Another compelling narrative, I'll take a ridiculous example and lighten the tone, but my family persuaded, us, persuaded me to watch, and it was a fabulous film, the, is it called The Kinky Boot Factory? about uh, this factory that's going to, everybody's going to be laid off work because they've been making boots, shoes in Nottingham for, for generations and there's no market left for what they, for, they're just too expensive and they start to create these, the, the, these boots for people who are trans and, uh, and there's a moment where the factory, the, this girl on the factory floor says to the manager as he's laying everybody off, 
Are you really going to tell us there's nothing you can do? Are you going to just wave your hands in the air and say there's nothing you can do? And he manages to create this very compelling case which takes the whole workforce with him. Yes, we can change our product. We can serve a group of people who are being despised in this world. And it's a different example of the fact that one can create compelling narratives rooted in truths and human experience to counter, in a little way, the power of untruth. And that's the first thing I want to talk about. But that's all very well if we don't address what I think was probably actually the issue behind the Brexit referendum, which is a sense of injustice and disempowerment. At the same kind of open forum in my community, I heard from... Uh, from uh, a researcher who'd been looking at the economic background to Brexit and advising in the run-up to the referendum. And she's, uh, I think she's German by birth. She says, I've worked as an economist and social economics in five countries in Europe. Britain is the most centralized to the southeast. It's the most, it, it listens least to its regions except Scotland that has a voice and look how it voted. And that comment about disempowerment and with that inequalities I know this is going to be addressed on the panel later seems to me to lie behind a powerful sense of, sense of discontent and uh, seeking some sort of consolation I probably shouldn't say this after the referendum Jonathan Friedland who's a close friend he's a columnist for the Guardian came to my synagogue and he said to me at the end of the service he said you know what, your community has got more in common with refugees from all over the world than you would have with working class people in an unemployed area somewhere in central or northern Britain. And that comment is a very telling comment and it's a very true comment. And it seems to me in the kind of, in the kind of political whatever we are now, the attempt has not been good enough to address the real pain of the people who, whose issues affect them day by day and we are in a world and I noticed this when I went a couple of times to Calais when the jungle was sort of at its worst where anybody can see in seconds how the other half lives wherever you are in the world because people may have very few things but just about every refugee had an iPhone and so you, you don't not know and unless that issue of disempowerment, a sense of, I, I can't actually move anywhere sort of across the social ladder. I can't get anywhere in my life unless that's addressed. We're going to go back and back and back to a sense of the failure of our political system. So truth, injustice. The third thing I want to mention as a background issue is fear and a sense of hopelessness. It comes from many directions. One of them, particularly true of the last three, four months of 2018, is news about the environment, which is something that I think none of us can be indifferent, indifferent to. And I was talking to my daughter, my, my, my younger daughter, who's 21, and she said, well, does it matter how well or badly I do in my exams, because we'll all burn anyway. And that, I think that we cannot take ourselves and our communities 
to places of hopelessness, even if part of us kind of resonates to that terrible note. Because we have a responsibility to lead and we have a responsibility always to do our best. And I think something that can exacerbate a person's sense of hopelessness and powerlessness is very interesting studies in the last weeks which have been published about the relationship between depression and social media. The sense of being simply overwhelmed with messaging you can do nothing about. And again, Jonathan Friedland, in his last piece in 2018, wrote in The Guardian, said, limit your exposure to the news and counterbalance it with more exposure to country parks and football. I'll leave the football to others, but the country parks, well, look where we are. All of these factors, a kind of age of untruth, profound injustice and inequality, and a sense of hopelessness and disempowerment, feed the threats to our democracy which is why I've dwelt on them. And these threats of, to our democracy now, what, what are they? I want to talk a bit about them before talking about how we respond to them. One of them, which frightens me very much, is um, weakness within the leadership in our democratic institutions. I noticed that the, the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, Justin Welby published, a published something saying, I think it was a tweet, saying, I'm praying for all our politicians engaged in this difficult process. So wise words, because it strikes me that, it was said earlier, we're not in 1930s Germany, but Weimar, which was an incomparably shorter-lived democracy than the traditions of this country, it failed partly because of the weaknesses of its leaders. Von Hindenburg was old and no longer had the same grasp as he'd had earlier in his career. He lets Hitler in through misjudgments and through, through the failure of others to occupy important spaces in leadership. And I'm very worried, I'm just speaking about the scene in this country, about the, the, the lack of real visions which creates space for the kind of leader one does, not, one does not want. So I actually pray for the strength of our democratic institutions. And I think it's bad in a country when people basically hear the word politician and despise the person who follows that, pro that profession. Most politicians, this is from where I heard this from Lord Dabbs, so I'm just quoting him, are public servants who seek to do their utmost for their country. And as it were, to consider this as a class to be held in contempt is also an extremely bad view for us, for us to be holding. And I think that, that, that one, of, one of our responsibilities is to uphold and strengthen the, the ethics of the basic institutions across our society. Because otherwise, we leave space for the lure of the powerful leader. And here I want to quote from what I found one of Amy Buller's most fascinating interviews. It was Dr. Weber in Darkness Over Germany, who is a, a Nazi uh, teacher 
who he says doesn't believe in his own heart what he's saying. But he says as follows to a group of people who gather at night. I'm not going to enter into the various aspects such as freedom from foreign domination, freedom from economic slavery, freedom from poverty or unemployment. You know of these and many others, but I want to suggest to you that the younger generation in Germany needed above all the freedom that comes from security. And the kind of security I mean is that which comes to those who give complete obedience to an authority they know they can trust. For youth in Germany, the terrible time of uncertainty is over. In national socialism, they find the reason for their existence, the chance of living fully and with a purpose. And I don't think those are words to underestimate, or, nor should we underestimate how easily it is to be seduced by the notion that all I have to do is follow. Alongside that lure of the strong leader is the danger then that such people, once they enter power, destroy the very institutions that got them there. Yasha Munk draws repeated attention to this phenomenon. So does Timothy Snyder in his book on tyranny 20 lessons, lessons from the 20th century. He says, it's institutions that help us preserve democracy. They need our help. Don't speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions don't protect themselves. Choose one you care about. A court, a newspaper, a law, a union. Take its side. And I'm glad that in this country, the judiciary is not a political appointment. I think we all watched that terrible debacle in the States. I watched it with horror. But it's not just, as it were, politics and democracy and the media. It's also religion that can act as a form of false god. Hugo Grin was published with Hugo and his working with his daughter after Hugo Grin had died all too young. I think many of us remember the resonance of his voice and we, we, we miss him on, on Radio 4. In his book, Chasing Shadows, he writes about the Nazi alternative Ten Commandments. Here are the first three. God was replaced by a Fuhrer and his minions who claimed the power of life and death. They fashioned countless idols of silver and gold. They swore falsely. They made lies an instrument of state policy. I actually want to go further than that. I don't even think that... I mean, not questioning that these things are absolutely true, but the false god of religion quite often is religion. And that we need to be extremely careful that we don't ourselves or within our faiths support, um, the, um, support the, the, the kind of idolatry of saying, my god is the god. Because that's really a confusion between the path of our religion and the aim of our religion, which is to open our souls and our hearts and our minds and our imagination to the God of all life and all human beings. But it's very, very easy to worship the path instead of God. And I think this, is, this kind of idolatry is very widespread across our world and in all our faiths. And Dan Pagis, who grew up in Transnistria, managed to escape the camps and make his way to Israel. In his poem, Testament, he, he, he puts this very well with a wordplay in Hebrew, which is hard to convey in translation. 
he, he's looking at the Nazi soldiers and he says, no, no, they, they, they definitely were human beings. Uniform, boots, how to explain it. They were created in the image. I was a shadow. A different creator made me. And we need to be very careful that we don't create God in our image and leave a lot of people in the world feeling that a different creator made them. So religions also can be a threat to democracy if we turn our religion into idolatry. What then must we do? Here are just some thoughts. Um, I wish I knew more. First of all, one of our roles, and many of us are involved in religious institutions or religious leaders or in secular institutions or in interfaith bodies, is to strengthen community. To be alone in times of threat and fear is to be even more vulnerable. And we should strengthen community by inclusion. As I feel this in ways which are not strictly relevant to our subject, but as, 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 as cuts in public spending are likely to increase, the doors that must not close are the doors of our mosques and churches, temples and synagogues to people with mental illness, to people who are vulnerable, to people who are fragile. We need to reach out as, as society may become more threatening to vulnerable people and include them and speak with them and listen to them and hear them. But we also need to strengthen our community of communities. That's exactly the work of the Council of Christians and Jews and many other interfaith bodies. Because we need to hear each other, we need to listen to each other, and we need to be in solidarity because it's not as if we really differ in terms of our essential values. And we need to hear parts of the community and different communities that we don't always hear. I was very moved by the film, many people will have seen it like our family has many times, Pride. The gay community comes to support the minors in South Wales in their long and protracted and bitter strike, which many people here will remember. And then, when it comes to gay pride in London, busloads and busloads of minors turn up to support their, their march. These are not two communities you would ever have thought would get on together, and the film's quite entertaining, but, but it does give an example of communities who hear and discover each other, who haven't known they care about each other. That's the kind of strengthening of community we have to enable across our society, across our countries, and whatever happens with Brexit across Europe. We need to deepen, I think, our personal spiritual resilience and try and find ways of communicating and enabling it in rich and diverse ways in our communities. I was talking to Justin Huxley, Dr. Justin Huxley, who's the head of St. Ethelburgers, which does interfaith and outreach. And she said our spiritual resilience is the one thing we really have, which you can't have taken away, taken away from you. By spiritual resilience, I mean an in-touchness with our inner life, whether that's connected with God or whether we experience it through nature or through music or through our dog or through caring for the sick or in whatever way or through children. That in-touchness which, which grounds us in our values in a disciplined manner. So community, spiritual resilience. And then we need to touch base with our religious discourse, if that's a, that's, that's a part of many people's lives, and ask, us, ask ourselves, am I talking 
religion or idolatry? And am I saying it where it matters? And one of the tests is, is the way I'm speaking enabling me and others to find the presence of God, the image of God, to use a biblical image, in, in every human being? And quoting a, a Mishnah, a rabbinic teaching from the second century, do I see in the other person exactly the same entitlement as I have and see in myself to say, for me, the world was created? And if that's our discourse, we'll be opening our synagogues, churches, mosques, temples, places of work to expand our moral conscience and our moral imagination. And then we must not avoid looking at and exploring what's wrong. Going in our imagination, our reading, our thoughts, our physical person to places which are difficult, where the tensions of our world are being lived and experienced. One of the amazing things about Amy Buller is she goes to Germany, she goes back and back again. She doesn't say, I won't listen to people whose views I don't like. She, she, she has her moral compass, but she doesn't, she thinks about how people have got where they've got rather than stopping them from telling her. And she repeatedly says, it's very easy for the British to damn all the Nazis. It's more complicated than that. And lastly, and with this I'll finish, we need to do our best to show commitment and leadership in the public square. Timothy Snyder in his book and 20 Lessons from the 20th Century says, life is political, not because the world cares about how you feel, but because the world reacts to what you do. And he says, stand out. Someone has to. It's easy to follow along. It can feel strange to do or say something different. But without that unease, there is no freedom. Remember Rosa Parks. And I'll finish with a, a traditional piece of Jewish interpretation, which is Abraham argues with God over the fate of the city of Sodom. He doesn't argue that Sodom's really great. He, you know, it's acknowledged that Sodom is, a, is an evil is an evil place. He, he argues over how many good people there have to be in the city to, to save it and preserve it. And um, he says to God, if there are in Sodom 50 good people in the midst of the town, and rabbinic tradition allows for no notion of redundancy of vocabulary. So if it's in Sodom, what does the midst of the town mean? And the commentator Eben Ezra says, they're not just trying to be righteous in private. You know, having conversations behind, their, behind the walls of their houses about how Sodom ought to be. They're prepared to be in the street. And the modern commentator, Nechama Leibovitz, who died about a year and a half ago now, she says, yeah, if you're out there, you might do something for your city. If you have good thoughts, but you don't share them, then what? So the last thing I think we need is moral courage and in a way, political courage as well. Thank you.